Greg Rubel of Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We want to thank you for your interest in God's Word and this message. We pray that God puts it into your heart. See, you know, um, you know what time of year it is, right? Well, it's, it's time for the State of the Union address, you, you know. Uh, and it's kind of interesting times, you know, in, in our government right now with the, with the uh, squabble over the State of the Union address. You know, Nancy Pelosi has locked the doors of the House of Representatives saying we're not doing the speech during the shutdown. President Trump's banging on the door, you know, saying we are going to do it. And now maybe they'll get to do it because of the shutdown, you know, being over for a few weeks anyway. Uh, sorry to uh, bring that up in in church, um, but uh, you know, regardless of the side that you take, or if you don't care, it is interesting times, uh, maybe maybe annoying times as as well. Uh, you know, normally at the State of the Union, uh, after that is over, the opposing political party comes in on the screen and gives a response to the president's glowing report of the country and and the direction that we're headed. It, it always happens, and I'll tell you. I don't think that I remember a single response to the State of the Union address. Except maybe one, when Marco Rubio took a sip of water, you know, for the three-minute speech. You know, do you remember that? See, that's like the only response we remember. You know, like, what are we doing here? Let's get, let's get back to church. Well, listen, we're going through the book of Luke. And it's a journey we've been on for quite some time, kind of slowly going through, taking in this history that has been provided for us by God to tell us about Jesus and his and his ministry. And today we're going to get to some events that were history making events. They're things nobody has ever forgot and they beckon a response from us. But unlike the State of the Union address where the responses are never remembered, these responses that you can make today can change your life. They can be history-making responses. And so we're going to dive into Luke chapter 19. We're going to finish that chapter uh, today and uh, look at some of these things. So we're starting Easter early. So let's read uh, verses 28 to 40 to get started. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, away and so those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. 
And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be here today, grateful to gather as your people and uh, to hear from, from you and for, from you, for you to hear from us uh, the, the joy and the, and the blessing that um, comes with knowing you. And so we, we pray that we might, uh, we might be able to lift our hearts together today to, to worship you as you deserve. And, you know, I was thinking, Lord, that the best thought that I could have of you isn't good enough. The best devotion that I can muster, the, 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 the most affection that can come out of me isn't enough. I need you, need your grace, need your spirit to take me to another level. So do that with us this morning, Lord. Take more of our hearts, more of our lives as we worship together, as we dive into the word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Luke 19, we'll start in verse, verse 28. And that, and that verse, verse 28, kind of gives me an opportunity to review a little bit of the things, remind us some things about the book of Luke. I mean, it said there, when he, when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead into Jerusalem. And what we want to realize is that Luke has recorded history for us. He's recorded things that actually happened. He is a physician by trade and he undertook a systematic study of Jesus' life and ministry and he wanted to write it all down. He opened up the book this way in Luke chapter 1, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Doesn't that make you want to read this book? Now, nobody knows who Theophilus was, uh, except he, might, he was probably a, an official of some kind because of the way that, that Luke addressed him, most honorable Theophilus. But his name means friend of God or beloved of God. And so you could insert that name instead of Theophilus, you could insert that name friend of God or beloved of God. You can insert your own name. And realize that what you're reading here is, is written for you so that you could be more certain of the things that you have been taught, things that you have believed. So this is history. It's in chronological order, this book of Luke. And it can make history in your life. Now, Jesus has been on his final journey to Jerusalem since chapter 9, which like for us was 2017, I think. I don't know. Um, but um, in chapter 9, he set his face toward Jerusalem. You know, it was a very, uh, it was, it was a very careful sentence. You know, he, he had a resolve to go and do what God wanted him to do. And that meant go to Jerusalem and die and rise. And so he set his face in chapter 9. And here he comes to the day when he arrives at the city to begin that final week of his mission. And so, like I say, we're starting Easter early at Living Streams. We're going to be in Passion Week for about three months. 
which is cool because that gives us a unique opportunity to look at everything that Jesus said and everything that he did. Because everything that he said and everything that he did was deliberate. And it was important. And it beckons a response from us. All the things that he said, all the things that he did, they've never been forgotten. I mean, there's art around the world painted from just one sentence in the last week of Jesus' life. The the impact of this week has been huge on the world. And we're praying that it will be huge for us. Because what we're wanting to do as we go through these pages of history is to bring his story to life in our life. Because we know if we do that, it'll make history in our life. And so, even his triumphal entry can do that. What does he do in verses 29 to 40? He rides into Jerusalem. And what, the way he does that clearly communicates his most blatant message that he said, he, he, or he knew he was the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He was God's anointed, the Messiah, and he knew that. And so his arrival into the city beckons a response from us. We gotta respond to his arrival. So let's look at what he does, because it's full of meaning. So it starts off by giving the disciples some instructions about going to find a colt and bringing it it back to him for the procession. Now Jesus either has the foreknowledge of where the colt is and who the disciples are going to talk to, um, or he's made some plans ahead. And uh, that's kind of how I tend to think he he did this. Um, Not that he couldn't have the foreknowledge, he certainly could have. Um, But, you know, back in chapter 10, he sent out disciples to every place that he would go, giving them instructions. And it's certainly possible and certainly realistic that Jesus would send two disciples to Jerusalem with the instructions, hey, go and find a colt that's never been ridden. And so I think these are prearranged plans. He believes, or Jesus knows the scriptures. He knows that his life is going to fulfill many of the prophecies that have been written about him. And so this arrival to Jerusalem is going to fulfill words that were written hundreds of years before it happened. Words from Zechariah, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. So Jesus is sending a message with his arrival to his people and to the world that he is the Messiah. He is royalty. He didn't say it with his words, but he said it with his actions. So the question is, have we got the message? Have we received the message of Jesus' position, his kingship, his royalty in our life? Well, first of all, how did he send the message? Let's look at that first. First way he sent it was the the kind of cult that he went, that he sent the disciples to find. A cult that had never been ridden on. So this animal's been set apart for a special purpose. The owner didn't even know what purpose it was going to be. But he set the animal apart. And it had never been written before. A special uh, purpose for this animal. Jesus sent a message when he told his disciples what to say to the owner when they untied the colt. It was like a secret password. The Lord has need of it. And there's no exchange, no conversation, no arguing. They say to the owner, the Lord has need of it. And of course they go and they they untie the colt. The owner says, hey, what are you doing? The Lord Lord has need of this. 
And what does the owner do? He relinquishes his rights of ownership and, and he gives the cult to the disciples because the Lord's wishes are subordinate to, or the Lord's wishes, the people's wishes are subordinate to the Lord. Even an owner and his rights. Jesus sent the message when he was put up on the cult by the disciples. As far as we know, this is the first time in Jesus' life that he's ever ridden anything. He's always getting around on, on foot. I mean, remember, he doesn't even have a place to lay his head. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't have possessions. So it's very easy to see that he, this is the first time he's ever ridden anything. <clears throat> I mean, he's been on this journey to Jerusalem by foot. He's gone for days and days and miles and miles on foot. And then he gets to the last mile and he gets on a donkey. This was intentional. This was purposeful. He's fulfilling, sending a message. This is how a king enters this city. Now, this ride, it wasn't to become king, but rather to proclaim what he already was. He was already king. And he was, he was God's royal Messiah. Jesus sent the message when he allowed his disciples to quote Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, those words were, this isn't the first time those words were shouted. They were shouted in, in pre-exilic Israel every time a king would ride into Jerusalem. Annually, they would do this. They would, they would have the king ride into Jerusalem and all the people would shout, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. These are words reserved to celebrate a king and they re-enthroned him, you know, ceremonially. That's, that happened in Israel. And here they are saying, saying this as Jesus rides in. He's sending a message. Now, the Pharisees got the message because they got upset. <laughs> I mean, they're hearing these words and they're saying, hey, Jesus, tell them to be silent. And Jesus says, hey, if they're silent, the stones will cry out. He's sending a message. Have you got the message? Have you received the message that Jesus is the king of kings and Lord of lords? His arrival communicates it. Now, the way you answer that question, have you got the message, is how you respond to the arrival. And then there's five responses in this scene. The first one's an obedience response. The two disciples that were sent, they went. And they went to the, find the cult. They found the cult. They said what they had to say, and they brought the, the cult back. Now, it, it, it kind of sounds like these weren't the same two disciples that he sent on ahead before to make the prearrangement. Sounds like they are not really in the know about what's going on. They're sort of on this little adventure with God. Jesus said, go. That's all they know. Go find a cult. The Lord needs it. And so they're on this little adventure. And I thought, you know, that's kind of how it goes when it comes to obedience, obedience to God, right? We get the command first and the understanding later. Isn't that how it goes? How do we get the commands? Through his word. His word tells us how to live. And that brings us to the second response, um, a submission response to the arrival. And you look at the owner of the cult. He's the one who gave the submission response. He, he hears that the king needs it. And so he relinquishes his rights of ownership to his animal. And he lets it go because they're subordinate to the Lord. You know, sometimes in our obedience to God, um, it will cost us something. And when we have moments like that where we make a decision um, for God's will at the expense of our own will, we know we are responding to his lordship, his kingship in our life. 
See, so you can say that Jesus is the is your king, the the king of kings. Uh, but when something comes up where you know this is what he wants you to do, do you submit? Even if you don't want to do it, do you go and do what he's called you to do? And think about your calendar. You know, that's a great place to look to see if your calendar and the way you spend your time would line up with God's word and how he would want you to set your priorities. You know, everybody's got to deal with that. How do we spend our time? God wants us to spend time with him. He wants us to spend time in church. He wants us to spend time with each other. He wants us to spend time serving and learning. And he wants us to spend time serving others. All of those things. When you look at your time, does God getting your leftover time or is he getting your prime time? What does he deserve? Is he your king? You know, time may be the most valuable thing that God receives from us in his eyes. Because he knows that it's short. We don't have very much of it. And we can't accumulate any more of it. So when we give our time, we're giving a huge blessing, a huge gift to God. We also can't be in two places at once. (laughs) Wish I could have done that during India. I would have really liked to, to have done that. But you know what? When we're giving time in one place, we are going to not be able to give it in another place. How do we set those priorities? How do we know who gets the time? God's word. It points us to how we spend it. So you think about that. When was the last time God won your time over your yourself or your family or your work? When was the last time God won? Listen, it's not a competition for time if you don't have another use for it somewhere else. I mean, if you're just watching Netflix and you say, oh, maybe I should go read. God's not winning there. You are. Get it? There's a competition for time. Does the word help you? How about your bank accounts? You know, do your bank accounts line up? Do they, do they shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord? If anybody, if all anybody could see from your life is how you spend your money, what would it say to them about your faith and who you believe God was? What would it say? This is how you know if you've responded to the king. Now, those, those are two areas. I bring them up because, you know, they're common to all of us. Every single day we make decisions on our calendar and our bank accounts. And they tell us a story about where our heart is with God. Black and white story. Worship is the next response. The disciples laid down their cloaks on the ground ahead of Jesus so that he could ride over them. This was an act of honor and reverence and worship. They took their most basic possession and laid it down before the Lord. Now, this was not an act of obedience. King did not command this of them. They willingly laid it down. They willingly laid down their life before him. Romans 12.1 talks about this kind of sacrifice. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. So in light of All Jesus has done and all he is. Have you offered your body as a living sacrifice 
to him? Have you put your manah to work? Have you laid down your nets to follow him? Have you forgiven someone because you've been forgiven so much? Have you made peace with someone? Have you shared Christ with someone? All of these things would be worshipful responses to his kingship, his lordship in our life. Now the disciples not only responded with worship, but they also responded with praise. They shouted praises of God for all of the mighty works that they had seen during Jesus' ministry. Blessed is the king. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I mean, those, those disciples sound like angels. Right? Remember angel shepherds? Remember we just did that. that that's what they sound like. Praising God. That's, that's a, a response to his kingship and lordship in our lives. Now, this is the place where we come, where we probably do the most praising when we all get together. And that's as it should be. But this is the easiest place to praise God. Because in here, the believers outnumber the unbelievers. And we're in the majority. But this procession is going on out in the public square. Out in the open air. And there's a, it would have attracted a huge crowd. And in that crowd were Pharisees and critics. And people who were standing back just watching. I mean, if you've ever tried to, to, to sing... To God was someone just watching you and not giving you anything. You know how hard that is. I say, if you can sing in front of people, you can do anything. <laughs> so they're praising God when they're outnumbered. Is that what we do? Do we praise God when we're outnumbered? When we go to work and something good happens, do we praise God? Do we let people know He's the one and we're acknowledging His goodness to us? Do we let people know? I mean, can, can you feel that difference between praising God in here and praising God out there? You can feel it, can't you? These disciples in this procession, they are all in. They are letting it rip. It's a loud shout. They are not holding back. They're worshiping their Messiah. They're, they're saying, this. listen, he, we're on his team. Laying down their lives, their standing, their rights, their reputations. All of it is a response to Jesus' royalty, to his kingship. And then the last response in this passage is from the Pharisees, and that's resistance. They, confronted with, they were confronted with this message that Jesus was sending, and instead of receiving it, they resisted it. Tell your followers to shut up. What they're saying is reserved for the Messiah, and that which you are obviously not. So here we encounter the wonderful grace of God as Jesus rides into Jerusalem proclaiming he is Messiah in the, un, in the most unmistakable way. He is still allowing people to make their own response to who he is. That's grace. See, he could have ridden in differently. He could have ridden in on a stallion declaring that he is the conquering hero, the victorious king, and he is to be feared. But that's not the message that he sent. He comes in on a donkey, a borrowed donkey at that, communicating peace to anybody who would respond to his arrival. So Jesus is still riding into our lives today. He's still riding in. He still comes in as a gentle, humble Messiah who brings us peace with God. 
How do you need to respond to his arrival today? Because every day is a chance for us to respond. Every day we have an opportunity to submit to him and obey his commands. Every day we have an opportunity to lay down our lives before him and to praise him. Every day. Or every day we can resist him. We can give that response too. So where are you at today? What's the response that you need to make? What, what would the Lord call you to do? I say don't let another day go by without Jesus being enthroned on your heart. Put him there. He's already the Lord. Come under his leadership. And everything changes. You know, living a life of resistance is hard work. It is exhausting to be critical and judgmental and always calling out the wrong. It's exhausting. But submission is easy. Submitting to Jesus. You think about what he said. Remember Matthew eleven twenty nine to 30. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We want to be yoked with Jesus. To be yoked, we have to submit to that. Responding to his arrival. Do any of those except resistance and you'll make history today in your life. Now the procession, it nears Jerusalem. And as Jesus gets a picture of his uh, this magnificent city, he gets emotional over it and he weeps and his tears beckon a response uh, from us uh, to his anguish. And so I'm going to read verses 41 to 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus sees the city and he starts to weep. What kind of tears is he weeping? They're tears of grief. They're tears of sorrow, anguish. He sees the side of the city and he's full of sorrow for the direction that it is heading. He's, he's wishing that they would have longed for the things of peace rather than what they were longing for. Things that he preached, things that he made available to the people through himself. With all of the celebration and the praising that's going on, you know, Jesus is still on top of the cold. He's riding into Jerusalem. In all of that celebration, Jesus sees the city and he's weeping with grief over the city. I've never seen a picture of the triumphal entry with Jesus on the, on the donkey weeping. But that's what was happening. He was broken over the city. Now, even some of the people that were hailing him as king were, were hailing him because they thought he was going to overthrow the Romans. And they were looking for that political revolutionary, that military victory. Um, that's what they were hoping for. And so they weren't getting it. 
Jesus didn't come the first time to, to bring victory on earth. He came to bring victory in the hearts of men. A spiritual victory. And so as he wept, he rode along and he prophesied the future of Jerusalem. And the direction that they were headed politically was going to lead to destruction about 40 years later from this event in 70 A.D. The Romans came in and they tore the city apart, did exactly what Jesus said. They surrounded the city on all sides. They tore it down brick by brick. They left three towers just to show how massive Jerusalem was and that the Roman army was able to conquer it. They killed all the women and children. The streets ran blood red. It was awful. They say the destruction was so bad when Titus, the general of the Roman army who was leading this assault, came in. He saw it for the first time and he raised his hands to heaven and said, God, this is not my doing. It was bad. At the end of Jesus' prophecy, he repeats the cause of it. The people did not know that God had visited them. They missed him when they were shown the way of peace. Now the parallel... To our lives, I don't think is is too hard to see. Jesus weeps. He weeps over people. He weeps over the suffering, the unbelief, the sin in our life. He weeps over those things. I felt a little bit of that in in India. Uh, one evening, we were in the town of Surat, and we uh, had a meeting in the street. You have a picture of that. And uh, so, I don't know, can you see it? <laughs> it? Looks dark. But we were we were out on the street, and um, some of the people in this group were already part of Pastor Maquan's fellowship there, and some were, were not. And there was one lady who came. She came from about four hours away with her husband, and she sat up front, and she was she was possessed by an evil spirit. She was living in fear constantly, day and night. She wasn't eating. She wasn't sleeping. It had been going on for about three months. And so they came to ask for prayer. So we laid hands on her and we prayed for her, but there really wasn't any kind of visible change. She just sat there in the chair and she was all wrangled up, just wanting to leave. So we went on with the meeting and as I was preaching about the love of God and how to receive Jesus Christ into your life and what all of that means, um, people were coming and going. You know, we were in the street. People were coming down the street and they'd stop for a second and they'd walk on by. And then during that message, she and her husband, she got up and she left before the end of it. And as we were leaving that night, I just was overcome with grief that people were so close to Jesus but missed him. They missed him. And I wouldn't want that to be the case here today. As bad as the destruction of Jerusalem was, it is nothing compared to the destruction that awaits those who don't know Jesus. It's nothing. Don't miss the opportunity you have today as Jesus visits us here. He is here. He is not looking at you with a critical eye. He is not pointing a judgmental finger at you. He is weeping over you. Weeping over your life, over unbelief, over resistance, over sin, over the suffering that comes from all that sin. He's weeping over you. 
He cries his tears over the punishment that waits for the people that missed him when he came. He can be found today. He's still, you're still able to come to him today. How do you respond to his anguish? Just like he weeps for Jerusalem, he weeps over us. Do not attend church today and miss the Savior. Don't miss him. Don't miss recognizing him for who he is and what he's done for you. This glorious king. When he rode into Jerusalem, he didn't ride in to declare victory for the city. He rode in to die for the city. And that's what he did for you. He gave his life as a ransom for many. So that we could have life with him and his heavenly father. And we can receive forgiveness of our sins. Believing in Jesus and receiving him into your life as Savior and Lord is how you turn his mourning into dancing. And that can happen today if you'd respond to him. Here's another picture from the trip. Yeah, I know. It's a great picture, isn't it? This is actually at the airport in Paris. Now, if you were going to go to Paris... And you ask people what you should see. What do you think they would tell you to see? Eiffel Tower. Well, that is actually a picture of the Eiffel Tower. It's just 16 miles away. And I couldn't see it. Now, 16 miles is as close as I have ever been to the Eiffel Tower in my life. So I thought, took a picture of that, because actually Lori asked me, can you see the Eiffel Tower? And I said, mm, it's out there somewhere. <laughs> so listen, you're talking to a guy that's been to Paris and missed the Eiffel Tower. Don't be like me. Don't come to church and miss Jesus. He's here, and he wants you to respond to him. He wants you to believe in him. So the procession takes Jesus into the city and he goes to the temple where he goes in and he does some housekeeping and his actions beckon a response to his anger. Verses 45 and 46. And he entered the temple and and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus goes into the temple and he finds things that should not be there. And he doesn't find things that should be there. So the outer courts are filled with money changers and with sellers of animals. When you came to the temple by the law of God, you were supposed to go and you paid a temple tax. You had to pay that in their money. So you had to make an exchange of your money for their money. And that was a killer exchange rate inside the temple. And then you also had to offer a sacrifice of a spotless animal. And of course, you could find a spotless animal in the outer courts of the temple where you were able to buy them for two and three times what you'd pay outside the temple walls. But all the ones outside were deemed unacceptable. So the people are being exploited here. That's what's going on. It's like walking through the airport. you thinking about, I didn't buy anything to take home to my family. And you come to the gift shop 
And there everything is to take home to your family, but it's like two and three times as expensive as it is, you know, if you would have bought it somewhere else. Or better yet, you stop by the airport McDonald's to buy two cups of coffee. You hand them a $20 bill and you get back euros, which was about $10, we think. So you do the math. Their coffee was better than our coffee at McDonald's, but not five times better. But see, we had a need, and McDonald's could meet our need, and so we paid what we had to pay to get coffee. Same thing is going on in the temple. Same thing. The temple management is taking advantage of the situation. They are fleecing the pilgrims who are required by law to come there and offer sacrifice. Now, you can expect what I ran into at the airport, but this is happening in the house of God. Things that just should not be. Not only was that going on, but prayer wasn't going on. Isaiah 56.7 is what Jesus quoted. My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. Instead of people seeking after God, they were using God and abusing his people to get rich. Where was the all night prayer vigil? Where were the prayers of confession and repentance? Where were the prayers of thanksgiving and and praise? They weren't there. Now the temple was the crown jewel of Jerusalem. It was a magnificent structure. Herod had just done this makeover, this extreme makeover. He plated the walls with gold. He made the floors out of marble. I mean, this is the nicest building that you could imagine. It glowed. And when Jesus went in there, he saw what was there and he saw what wasn't there and he got angry. Now, if you could picture Jesus riding into your life today, I can tell you where he would go. He would go to your heart. Just like he did when he went into Jerusalem. He went to the heart of Jerusalem, the temple. He would ride into your life and he would go right for your heart. What is he going to find there? You know, the heart is the center of who we are and and determines the course of our life. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. So what's going on in here tends to make its place visible out here. And Jesus is the heart doctor. He's the one that can change things. And here, you know, his anger is not directed at people. It is directed at the things that people are doing. Their dishonesty, their greed, their apathy, their their lack of reverence. He turns over the tables. He cleans house with the things that should not be. And he will do the same thing in your heart. You can't get rid of them. Only he can do it. So you ask yourself, what is there in my heart that should not be there? What would make Jesus angry? What needs to go? Is there lust, greed, gluttony, pride, jealousy, judgmentalism, racism, 
anger. What needs to go? Galatians 5, 19 to 21. When, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. What needs to go? What shouldn't be in there? Don't be afraid of Jesus' anger. It is not directed at you. It is directed at the things that you do, not the you that is you. So you open your heart to him and you, you let him in. You let him come in and clean, to clean up the things that should not be there. Making it new. Making it fresh. This isn't for somebody who's never believed in Jesus. This is for every believer because every believer needs the gospel every single day. We're never going to be perfect. We're always going to need this. So we open our heart up to him and we ask him to clean us up. Come in and do the things that the heart doctor can do. Get rid of the things that should not be there. And then there are things that should be there that are not there. So think about that. Do you have a heart for God? Do you have a heart for his word? Do you have any hunger for his presence? Any longing to do his will? Do you have uh, laying down your life as a sacrifice for him doesn't feel like a sacrifice at all because of what he's done? Is it a pleasure to serve your king? Is it a joy to suffer a little bit like he did? Suffering for you. What kind of follower are you? Are you a religious follower or a relational follower? What kind of follower? Now, if you're answering any of those questions to the negative, take heart. Because just like you can't get rid of the stuff that shouldn't be in there, you can't put stuff in there that needs to go in there. Only he can do that. Only Jesus can do that. And he's given us the Holy Spirit as the helper to do that. The Holy Spirit is the one who stirs us up for kingdom things, who gives us a spiritual appetite, who, who increases our spiritual fruit. Who makes us useful and productive. Who strengthens our faith. Our faith. Who helps us walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. The Holy Spirit does all of these things. But it, for us, it starts with a confession. A confession of what's in there that shouldn't be. And a confession of what's not in there that should be. Can I tell you, my, my most common prayer right now is, God, I want to hunger for you more. I want to live every minute of the day remembering you are with me. And I can't get it done. I need his help. So that's how we respond to his anger. With humility and honesty. Get honest with him. Say, Jesus, here I am. Come in. Clean me up. I am doing a miserable job of trying to get it done. And help me walk in a manner worthy of the calling I have received. Make me something beautiful. Make that kind of response today and it will make history in your life.
I want to say a quick word about the last two verses because there's another history-making response there. We need to respond to Jesus' audacity. Verses 47 and 48. And as he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. And they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. So Jesus makes this this bold public entrance into the city. Then he goes to the heart of the city, into Jerusalem, into the viper's nest, and he stirs them up. He's like stirring up the hornet's nest when he goes in there and turning over the tables, shouting out things that make them feel convicted. What does he do after that? Does he go into hiding? Far from it. He shows up every day. At the temple, continuing to teach the people, continuing to feed them truth and love and the gospel and telling them how to come into the kingdom of God. And the people were getting fed like never before. Jesus is going into the house of his enemies every single day saying, hey, respond to me. That's some audacious footsteps. And as his followers, he's going to lead us to people and to places that feel a little risky to go to. This is a picture here of a home in Rajkot, India. The man in the swing there, his name's Deepak. And he's a zealous Hindu. And his wife is sitting next to him and she's a new believer in Christ. And has been part of Maquan's meetings over there. And so... uh, this man is, has put his foot down in their home and he's told his wife, you cannot read the Bible and you cannot go to those meetings anymore. So when Pastor Maquan heard about this, what's his response? Don't worry, I'll go talk to him. He brought us along with him to have this conversation. So there we were in Deepak's living room and he opens up with, well, tell me what you believe. And so Deepak gets all excited and he goes and he grabs a couple books. And when he did that, Maquan kind of looked at me and he goes. <laughs> he was just setting him up. Because listening to what he believed opened a door up for him to listen to what we believe. And Maquan began to share with him about the love of God and about how God answers prayer. And he's, he's, we, us being there was him showing his love. And God allowed me to share my testimony with him about how I went from being this apathetic religious guy to a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And Deepak did not get mad. He did not argue. He just listened. And then he invited us to go to his office for ice cream and tea, which, of course, we accepted. And after uh, we finished our ice cream and tea, we we prayed for him, prayed for his business, prayed for his marriage, um, prayed for his heart, that God would bring some fruit from the gospel seed that was planted in him that day. And I believe he's going to. He will. Open Doors USA ranks India the 10th most dangerous country in the world to be a Christian in. And so if it was left up to me, We would have never made it to Deepak's house knowing he was so against Christianity that he saw it as a threat to his way of life, to his country. 
But the audacity of Jesus beckoned us to go. We don't hide this light under a bushel. No. We don't shy away from people that want to blow it out. No. We light it. We set it on a stand and let it shine into all the deepest, darkest corners of the world. And sometimes those places are going to feel risky for you to go. So if you just said to Jesus today, here I am, send me. Who do you think he would send you to? Where do you think you would go? You know, I have found the answer to that question, you can find out if you go, what am I afraid of? Because Jesus has always led me into situations and circumstances, into people that have caused me to have to conquer my feel by, by trusting in his love. He doesn't want us to live in fear. And the only way to, to not be afraid is to face it and to trust him because his perfect love casts out fear. So who is it? Who is it Jesus would send you to? Where would he have you go? Is there a kid at school who's a bully, kind of mean, people run away from, you don't really want to have anything to do with? Is there somebody at work, you know, who's causing trouble? Drama maker? Somebody people run from? Somebody who stabs people in the back? Is there a neighbor you got that's grumpy? Always... You know, somebody you just kind of hope isn't out when you go out. Who's God sending you to? Is your walk with God too safe? Respond to his audacity. Because when you do, it will make history in your life and it will have an impact on the people that you go to. Let's have our worship team come back up. Lots of responses here in God's word today. We wouldn't want you to come and feel like you didn't get enough of God's word. You know, we don't want to send you out spiritually hungry. We want you to go spiritually full. So go back. What is God calling you to do? What is, how does he want you to respond to him, to his arrival? Do you need a obedience response or submission or praise or worship? Or do you, have you seen, I'm resisting, I'm resisting him. What's the Lord calling you to do today? Do you need to respond to him in faith? You know, to say, I've known about you, I understand what you did on the cross, I agree with it, I'm glad you did it for me, but you've never crossed that line of faith to say, it is nothing in me that can get salvation, it's only what he's done. Jesus, I believe in you. A Savior, Lord, come into my life. A history-making response right there. You can do that today. He can be found. Today is the day of salvation. What is there in here that needs to go? And what's not in there that should be there? Confess it. Ask for filling. Ask for the help. And what about that audacious footsteps? Who is it God wants you to go to? Don't let another day go by without going where he wants you to go. Hey, this morning, we want you to respond to God's word. And so we're going to open the altar up as we sing this last song. And if you are hearing God talk to your heart today about something, 
Make it a visible thing. Confess your need for him by getting up and coming up here to an altar of prayer and just asking for help. Let's stand and sing together. Let's pray together. No, Lord, how we need you. We think of this word that we've read today. How you have set your face to go to Jerusalem. You resolved to do your Father's will. You rode in on a borrowed donkey telling the world you are the Messiah. You are the King of Kings. But came in peace. Lord, we want to respond to you today. Respond to your position in our lives. Obediently submissively, worshipfully, giving you praise along the way. What mighty things have you done in our life? How awesome you are. In comparison, my past responses have been so weak. Lord, help us. We need you. We need to believe. We need to submit. We need to go to the places that you would send us. Sometimes, Lord, we hold back from that because we know what's in our heart. We know what's going on in there that shouldn't be there. We can feel the lack that should be there. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Show us the destruction in our life because of the stuff that we keep in there. Help us confess it today, Lord. Clean us up. Turn it over. Throw it out. Make us holy. And put in us this appetite for you. It doesn't end when we walk out this door. That doesn't end at the end of Monday, but lasts the whole week long as we feast on your word. And commune with you in prayer. As we go out into the world and become your hands and your feet. Lord, our government's got no answers. Our systems of society, they've got no answers. Our education... No answers. 
Our doctors don't know what they're doing. Lord, you are the answer. Help us to respond to you today. Help us to love you more today. And I praise you, God, because I know that that's a prayer that you'll answer. So, Lord, as we prepare to go out, help us to go out bathed in your love, in your mercy, in your grace, yoked with you, finding rest for our souls, and watching you do miracles in our heart and in our life. We love you today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.